Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Today, if you've been with us, we're in the midst of a sermon series. We're almost to the end of the Old Testament um, in our sermon series, Table Read. And each week, we're kind of going through a book or two of the Bible and just seeing how it fits into the larger story. Um, And as it turns out, uh, in my seminary studies so far, and I think I'm going to finish out this way, uh, we just never got a class on how to do a whole book in one one sermon, one swing. So, uh, you know, please be gracious with me this morning as I, as I try to bring to you uh, just everything that's great about our, our book today um, in just one short period of time. So I wrestled with a lot of different ways that I might uh, explore today's book, but given how compelling the story is, as you'll see in a minute, um, and how little time we have to get through it, and how unlikely it is that everybody here is, has even read through this, or at least read through it uh, recently, Uh, I'm going to keep focused on the big picture, the overarching plot and story today. And uh, our book, if you want to follow along, is Esther. Um, It's right between Nehemiah and Job, if you want to follow along. Um, And it's an entertaining story. And it's got some of the best storytelling in Scripture. So we're just going to work our way through it. Uh, But first, please just join me for a moment in prayer as we prepare our hearts um, for the message. Uh, Father, I thank you for this opportunity uh, to bring your word today. We pray that the message uh, that I speak would not be my words, but they'd be your words. And that most importantly, um, your gospel, your the good news about Jesus would be heard uh, in this story. Even in this story where sometimes that, that can be really challenging to feel like like you're even there, God. But But help us to know you truly are. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you've never read through it before, you might not realize it, but um, Esther is the one book of the Bible where God isn't mentioned. Not once. He's never directly alluded to. Um, He just, he's never invoked by any of the characters. There's not even really any prayer in the book, although there's a little bit of fasting. We don't really see prayer connected to it. Uh, There are no clear miracles. There are no divine interventions, at least not that are written that way in the story. And none of the characters uh, ever actually receive like a direct revelation from God telling them, this is what you need to do to survive. Um, We don't read anything about Israel. We don't read anything about Jerusalem or the temple or even the Torah, the law that God gave his people. Um, To an ordinary reader reading this book, You'd be forgiven if you thought this was a secular story and not a story about God's people. Uh, For some of us today, it's going to be a lot easier to see our experience in Esther than in any of the other books of the Bible. Most of us wouldn't claim to have experienced the miraculous or heard the audible voice of God. But we live in a world that feels a lot like Esther's world, where God doesn't seem blatantly active. doesn't seem like he's moving the chess pieces. He's not in the world's events or the circumstances of our lives. On the surface, it seems as if God is absent, or at least not that interested in us. Many of us look for clues or traces, but we discover 
that God is very hard, if not impossible, to find. But perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, Esther shows us that God can be trusted even when he can't be seen. On the surface, the events of the world may seem to unfold at random, but in reality, God coordinates everything to accomplish his purposes. The narrator uh, illustrates this using two literary techniques that I'd love for you to just kind of pay attention to as we kind of go through it and see if you can pick up on it. One of these, the first technique, is coincidences. Um, As the James Bond author Ian Fleming once wrote, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying God is the enemy in this story. But there's something about the coincidences that pile up that make you go, this is more than just coincidence. This is more than just happenstance. This is God at work. And then the second device is... uh, is that the narrator uses Esther to illustrate God's activity uh, with reversals, sudden changes in situations. And those are kind of related to those coincidences as well. So as you see those pile up, just know, I think a reversal is coming. And you'll see what I mean as we go. So with these devices in mind, and knowing that we've got a lot to cover, let's just get right into the story. Beginning in chapter 1, as we zoom in in the book of Esther, we begin with a royal banquet. And it's in uh, the king's winter palace in Susa. And what you need to know is that this is, this is uh, following the Jewish exile, essentially. We're at a period where people could go back home, as we kind of learned from uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. But many, uh, many people of God didn't feel like they could make that travel back to the, to the promised land, back to Israel. And so um, this is a story about some of those people who got left behind. So they're in this, one of the four capital cities of the Persian Empire, Susa, is where we find our story. We're in the winter palace, the winter residence of the king, a king named Ahasuerus. And he's having a banquet, and it's being held in the third year of his reign. And the book of Esther doesn't exactly specify why, but the king is partying. And he's been partying for about a half a year. And then he decides, well, what's one more week? Let's have another, another week. But this time, it's just me and the boys. And, and my queen and the girls, they can have their party too. But we're, we're going to go a little overboard here. Um, so, you know, when you picture this party that the king is happening, you know, he's already had this six-month feast. But now, now it's sort of like a frat party. Uh, in fact, the word banquet in the Hebrew uh, is related to the Hebrew verb for drinking. And so think like an ancient kegger here. Like it's, it's a little out of control. But simultaneous to this king's uh, drunken festivities, his wife Vashti, his queen, is holding her own party for the women. And he's flexed his wealth and his power. And now he wants to interrupt his wife's celebration to show off her beauty to his friends. What a gesture. Uh, <laughs> it, it was common for Persian kings to display women this way. Uh, and it it's, it's disgusting. You can, you can definitely feel that way. That's definitely accurate. Um, but, but it's perhaps even more so in this circumstance because this is his queen. It's not one of his concubines. It's not just any other woman that he's hired to come to this party. It's his wife and it's his queen and she's supposed to have this position of power. But he, he calls her in and he knows she can't turn him down because he's the king. Nobody refuses the king. But Vashti does refuse him. 
She has enough self-respect not to be dehumanized by her drunk husband and his shameless friends, no matter what the consequences are. And this, of course, puts the king into this difficult situation. So he consults his counselors. One of them suggests that um, if word gets out about Vashti, there will essentially be a feminist uprising in the kingdom. Um, husbands won't be able to control their wives any longer. It's, it becomes this, uh, this giant thing. And, and you know because the king in this story, as you may begin to notice, doesn't really think much for himself. He says, yeah, that sounds good. Let's put, her, let's put her away. Let's put her out of my sight. She's no longer welcome in my sight. Let's start looking for a new queen. Um, but little does the king know that the queen he will get in Vashti's place will end up completely controlling him. Though Ahasuerus uh, may be the most powerful leader in the world, he's not nearly as in control as he thinks he is. So with Vashti uh, dismissed, Ahasuerus seeks to find a new queen. And the way this was done in the Persian Empire was by gathering many women into a royal harem from which the king would choose his wife. And then anyone who did not become his wife from that harem became his concubine. This is how Vashti had been chosen, and that's how the new king is going to be chosen. And it's shallow, and again, it's disgusting. But in, the, in this case, there are only three things that matter to the king. Youth, virginity, physical beauty. That's what he's looking for. And this is where our namesake of today's book enters into the story, because Esther is a young, beautiful Jewish woman living in Susa, and she's among those invited, or better yet, selected, to join the king's harem. And how she feels about it uh, isn't really clear from the text. The author identifies her with both her Jewish name, Hadassah, and her pagan name, Esther, and that may send, uh, send signals that like, there's some kind of internal conflict there um, between her Jewish identity and her Persian identity. Her father and her mother are deceased, and she's being raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. Um, and so she's caught between these two worlds, and this is just kind of the reality of life as an exile. Uh, even though God's people have been permitted to return, as I mentioned, it doesn't make it any easier. And for those who remain in exile, many feel that need to compromise. Uh, as Brian Gregory puts it, on the one hand, being true to her Jewish roots would certainly mean avoiding at all costs becoming a pagan king's concubine. On the other hand, living in the cultural climate of the Persians would mean seeing the luxury of the Persian court as something desirable. In the case of her Jewish identity, it, that's not made public, but... She joins the king's harem anyway. She undergoes this year-long treatment, cosmetics, uh, fine perfumes, special food, uh, just everything taken care of for her. So in, in some sense, there's something desirable about this. It's an easier life than she probably would have experienced otherwise. And she probably would have adopted more and more of those Persian uh, customs, their standards of dress, all in preparation for a one-night audition with the king for the chance to become his new queen. So by the time Esther finally encounters the king, it's been four years since Vashti was dethroned, which means that assuming Ahasuerus didn't wait around very long uh, to start searching for a new wife, he's probably been visited by more than a thousand women at this point. And uh, Esther is well-liked among the handlers of the royal harem. So she actually ends up getting an advantage. She gets some advice on how to please the king. 
how to, how to gain his favor. And though the book kind of euphemizes the situation, there's almost no question that Esther was given advice on how to seduce the king. She's got something in mind here. She wants to be the queen. And uh, unfortunately, a physical relationship with the king is in her future, uh, whether or not she becomes the queen, because she's part of that harem. And so she's just she's leaning in. She's deciding, I've compromised. What's a little bit more? This is a heavy reality, and knowing this appears, uh, it appears like she's compromised quite a bit. But she wins favor with the king because of that advice. She becomes the new queen of Persia. Uh, maybe that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. But as one scholar notes, the trouble isn't so much with the Bible as with our expectations of it. Instead, it's the unfolding story of humanity's brokenness, one sinner at a time, and God's redemptive act of grace in the midst of it. It's not a chronicle of great moral examples, ethical heroes, or spiritual giants. As I think about what it means to follow Jesus uh, in a culture that doesn't usually align with his values, uh, I find this really relatable. We live in a world that shares many parallels with the world of Esther, and it's tempting to live like the people in this story, to compromise, to blend seamlessly with the culture. But Jesus tells us to be salt and light. That means we need to be mixed in, yes, but we also need to be distinct. Maybe you've wrestled with that. Maybe you've been tempted to keep your faith private, to conceal your identity as a Christian. Maybe you've been tempted to compromise in order to get ahead, to get something good, or maybe just to avoid doing the right thing because you don't really love the consequences of that. I just want to say I get that. But I hope as we read more through Esther and through the story, you'll see that um, even these failures can be used by God for his larger purposes. But at the same time, I hope you know that Jesus can also empower you to push back that, to live faithfully in this world no matter what the consequences are. So as the story continues, the focus shifts from Esther to that older cousin I mentioned. His name is Mordecai. And some amount of time has passed between verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. That's where this switch occurs. It's probably been about five years, though, um, if we look at all the context clues. And we read that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, which is kind of an idiom. It's sort of like um, like when a judge is sitting on the bench. It, it just means that he holds office. He's an important person in the Persian government right now. So he's sitting at the king's gate. And while he's in this position, Mordecai catches wind of a plot. He overhears some people talking about assassinating the king. And then on behalf of Mordecai, Esther relays this message to the king in an an effort to overturn this plot. So Mordecai essentially should be a hero at this point. You know, he... He's uncovered this this evil plot to take down the king. It's overturned. Everything's great. And uh, and the king actually does take notice of that. And and we read um, that uh, the the men were investigated. They were found guilty. They were executed for their treason. And Mordecai's life-saving deed is recorded in the king's chronicles. But then we don't read that anything further happens. No medal is given out. No, No great position. No you know, reward of a million dollars or whatever else the case may be. It's just sort of noted and then everything moves on. Uh, but for one reason or another, he was overlooked 
And instead, Mordecai doesn't receive the honors, but somebody else does step in. The next main character of our story, a man named Haman. Haman becomes the second in command to the king. And Ahasuerus commands that all of his servants bow before Haman to show him homage, much like an enlisted service member might salute an officer in today's military. But Haman isn't just any man. He's introduced as Haman the Agagite. And if this seems unimportant to you, I'm really not too surprised. That's okay. But I want to tell you, it's actually a pretty important detail. It's not trivial. Uh, Haman, the fact that he's an Agagite, means that he's a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite. I know that's a lot of A's. might be a bit to keep straight, but I'll, I'll kind of run you through it. Hundreds of years before Esther, when Israel was coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked Israel in the wilderness and tried to destroy them. And therefore, God cursed the Amalekites. And then later, when Saul became Israel's first king, he was ordered to vindicate Israel by wiping out the Amalekites, including King Agag, where Agagite comes from. But if you read in 1 Samuel 15, Saul disobeyed the Lord and did not spare, or I'm sorry, and decided to spare Agag. And ever after, there has been enmity between the Amalekites and the Israelites. So knowing this, perhaps you can now see that this promotion of Haman, the Agagite, as the second most powerful man in Persia, uh, would strike fear into the heart of a Jewish person living in Susa or anywhere in Persia. It's a big deal. And because Esther 2.5 introduces Mordecai as a Benjaminite, which is the same tribe as King Saul, we can see that there's this added contention between Mordecai and Haman specifically. They're both related to the to you know each other's sole enemies, and, and there's there's just there's no forgetting something like that. So because because of this history, verse two of chapter three tells us that Mordecai refuses to bow in the presence of Haman. And though Haman does not notice at first, Mordecai doesn't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, but other officials in the royal court notice Mordecai's rebellion and they start asking him about it. At first he just ignores it. Maybe it's rhetorical. Why do you really need to know? But they keep bugging him about it. So finally he says, listen, I'm Jewish, okay? He thinks maybe that'll be enough. They'll, they'll just leave him alone about it. But in trying to verify the validity of Mordecai's reason for noncompliance, the officials bring the problem to Haman, which means everything's in the light. This is the opposite of what Mordecai wanted to happen. And Haman's response is very severe. This is where we meet the tension in our story. Haman goes to the extreme, plotting to destroy not only Mordecai, but to annihilate all of God's people within the Persian Empire. To determine the date of his proposed mass murder, Haman casts lots, which is kind of like throwing die in a game, like uh, just throwing dice until he came up with the date that he wanted to carry out this genocidal plan. And then Haman proposes his uh, plan to the king in Esther 3.8. And he begins with the truth. He says... There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples. Okay, that's true. Then he offers kind of a partial truth. He says their laws are different. Okay, technically true. Then he tells an outright law. They do not keep the king's laws. In short, Haman suggests that if something is not done about them, 
the Jews will at the very least cause disorder within the empire and quite possibly pose an imminent and widespread threat to the king, to the empire. And boy, doesn't that argument sound familiar. It's an argument that's been used uh, for many, to justify many uh, genocides throughout history ever since. Haman also kind of sweetens the pot and he offers to put in 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury, uh, which is by all counts an absolutely enormous sum. But he's so consumed with this hatred toward Mordecai that he's just willing to do whatever he can to make this thing happen. And unfortunately, again, because the king doesn't seem to like to think for himself very much, he just goes, yeah, okay, let's do it. And so uh, with, you know, a decree is sent out throughout the Persian Empire uh, that in less than a year, on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews were to be annihilated. Now, naturally, uh, the response of Mordecai and God's people reflected the severity of what was supposed to be coming. Uh, Mordecai, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he rubs ashes into his head. He, he roams the streets, just weeping and crying out. And this is actually a really biblical way of mourning. If, if there's one thing we could point to uh, in the whole story of Esther that, and go, like, that's a really biblical example, this would be it. He's lamenting. The only thing that's, that's unusual about it is that nothing has happened yet. Normally when we lament, when we mourn, Something's already happened. Someone's already died. We've already experienced a loss of some sort. In this case, it's still a year away. But he feels so strongly that there's just no getting out of this thing that he begins immediately. And as he roams the streets, all the other Jews of Susa join in with him. And soon news of this this edict gets its way to Esther as well. And she too is troubled because even though she hasn't revealed to anyone that she also is Jewish, it is, it is hard to watch your own people suffer through something. So she reaches out to Mordecai through a palace servant. And despite the hopelessness of the situation, Mordecai sends Esther a message back. And he asks her to intercede with the king on behalf of their people. But here's the problem. Only seven people in the entire empire are allowed to approach the king without him summoning them first. And guess what? His own queen isn't one of them. It's just the way it is. And, uh, and she knows that. And, it, and it's not just a simple, like, he's going to get upset if I approach him. If she approaches him and he doesn't, you know, swear off his guard to say, hey, leave her alone, she could be executed. So there's a risk there. And she, she says as much back to Mordecai. Um, and, to, you know, to add insult to injury, uh, Esther kind of shares with Mordecai that it's, it's been more than 30 days since I was last summoned by the king. I, I, don't know, I don't know if he even really like, likes me that much anymore. She wonders if she has any emotional leverage with the king. It could mean instant death. And so to this concern, Mordecai responds one more time with an argument that many of you, especially if you've read Esther, will be familiar with. Uh, it's in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. He says, Do not think to yourself that the king's palace that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Because if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. 
In essence, Mordecai tells Esther that doing the wrong thing is not any safer than doing the right thing. If Esther chooses to remain silent in order to play it safe, it won't benefit her in the end. She, too, is Jewish, and that edict that was sent out, it doesn't distinguish between Jews in the palace and Jews in the rest of Persia. Either way, Mordecai has faith that rescue will come from somewhere else, if not from her. He basically tells Esther that God is going to make his will happen with or without her. Ultimately, she's persuaded, and she asks Mordecai and all the Jews of Susa to join her in a three-day fast. And after that, she will approach the king. So on the day that she approaches the king, it comes three days of fasting have passed. And I should note that it wasn't just Esther that was fasting, but it was all the Jews of Susa in solidarity with her. But, you know, uh, I would say that probably her energy has been diminished a bit. Her appearance may not quite be what it would be if she had been eating. In addition, she hadn't been summoned, like I said, in over 30 days. And approaching him uninvited was dangerous, even as the queen. So she dons her royal attire, probably hoping to signal that she is a person of high honor, a person of high status, a person who deserves respect. She's the queen. That's got to mean something, right? So she puts on the royal attire, and, you know... She's, she's probably wondering to herself, like, is, is the king going to be in a generous mood? Is he going to be irritable? If he's not receptive, this could mean summary execution for me. These are the questions that are probably going through her head. But she approaches anyway in an act of pure conviction. Standing in the court opposite the entrance to the front throne room, Esther waits for the king to notice her. And when he sees her, she wins his favor, just like she did years ago. In fact, the king addresses her as Queen Esther. And it's important to note that throughout the rest of the story, she's just Queen Esther. It's not just Esther. It's not Hadassah. It's Queen Esther. She has secured it. Like, she has been legitimized here. And so the king sees her. He addresses her as Queen Esther. And he he offers to grant her whatever she wants. That's a pretty good sign. And she could have stated her request right there and then. But instead, she invites the king to a banquet that she's already prepared. And she says, hey, bring Haman with you. And the king says, of course, let's do it. So that later that day, they get together. Uh, and after enjoying the banquet, the king again offers to grant Esther any request. Okay, he wasn't kidding the first time. So she asks for what she wants, right? No. She says, why don't we have another banquet tomorrow? And since this king loves to indulge himself, he says, yeah, (laughs) let's do it again. And she's like, oh, yes, but don't forget Haman. Bring Haman. Okay, okay. Now, delaying this request might seem really strange to us, but just by showing up to this second second banquet, the king is basically implying that he will grant whatever she says. Like, she's, she's been very crafty, very smart, and very wise and cunning in the way that she's done this. It's been a great political move. And upon leaving Esther's first banquet, however, Haman sees Mordecai again in the king's king's gate. He's reminded of his hatred. He's filled with that contempt again. And when Haman gets home, he gathers his wife and his friends, and he tells them in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. I'm, I'm a big deal. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king 
So Haman and his entourage plotted to, I'm sorry, lost my place. And tomorrow I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He's just so consumed with this. He can't be happy with the fact that he's the second most important person in the empire. He can't be happy with the fact that he's probably insanely rich. But here he is. He can't be happy until Mordecai is gone. So he and his friends, his entourage, if you will, plot to build some gallows so that they can hang Mordecai the Jew on them in order to dis, just to publicly disgrace him. It's not enough to just get rid of him. He needs to be disgraced. He needs to be uh, looked down upon. That's just how uh, intense his hatred is. But another thing you need to know is that these gallows aren't just gallows the way that we think of them. It wasn't for hanging with a rope. These were stakes in the Persian Empire to be hung. wasn't so much to be hung as to be impaled. It was a gruesome, truly humiliating way to die. And Haman would have it no other way. And so because he's so powerful, he has the power to have this done immediately. And he he asks to have these things built. But as laborers are outside building this this giant stake for for Mordecai, uh, chapter 6 reorients us back to the palace. Uh, And here we see that the king is having trouble sleeping. And then in an effort to be lulled to sleep, he says, hey, why don't you bring um, the chronicles, the palace uh, records to me and, and read them to me so I can be lulled to sleep. This is kind of like saying, hey, uh, why don't you uh, bring out the phone book uh, and read it to me or the grocery list or, you know, so, something, something really trivial, maybe, uh, maybe an automobile manual. And um, essentially the king wanted to be bored to sleep. But then... Coincidentally, something happened, and the person who was reading these records opened them up, and he turned to a part of the king's reign from five years earlier, and he begins to read about how Mordecai had thwarted an assassination attempt against the king. But the chronicle doesn't mention a reward for Mordecai, and the king notices this. It's the opposite of lulling him to sleep. It's engaging him. Now, I told you this detail would be important, and this is why. It's not good for a king to let loyalty go unrewarded, and the king feels the need to rectify his oversight. Haman is lurking nearby, hoping to convince the king to allow him to impale Mordecai the next day. So the king invites him in, and he asks him, what should I do for someone that I want to honor? And uh, and the king doesn't mention that he wants to honor Mordecai. However, Haman is so distracted by his own lust for power and dominance, he believes the king is talking about himself. And assuming he's just been given the opportunity to suggest his own reward, Haman excitedly prescribes uh, exactly what he would want, the highest honors he imagined. You know, put a, put a ring on his finger, put royal robes on him, put him on the king's horse, slap a crown on that thing, and just parade through the streets. I want all the glory. This was... Oh, nothing could be better, especially if the king allows me to impale uh, Mordecai. This is going to be great. Is basically what uh, Haman is thinking at this point. But then when the king hears the suggestion, he says, yeah, that sounds great. Go grab Mordecai and do that. Ouch. Turns out this plan to execute Mordecai probably needs to be put to the side because... 
king kind of likes him. And this is kind of the turning point. This is where we're starting to see that reversal. The coincidences I mentioned earlier have started to pile up in a way that God is plainly working in this story. The king coincidentally can't sleep. When the king's chronicles are opened up, coincidentally, we open to the story of Mordecai and his good deed. When the king asks Haman how best to honor man, the king coincidentally forgets to mention that he's talking about Mordecai. Once his happenstance, twice his coincidence, three times his God in action. As you look back on your own life, are there any moments that seemed insignificant at the time that proved to be life-changing for yourself? Have you ever considered that God could be at work in these moments, arranging everything, making your life work a certain way, just the, the way that he intends it, sort of the way that it's happening here in Esther? In God's hands, it seems that any moment can be an opportunity for redemption. And the, coincidence, uh, the coincidences, they don't really end here. The next day, Esther hosts her final banquet for Haman and the king. A third time, the king offers to grant Esther any request. But this time, she reveals her true desire. Here's what she says in chapter 7, verses 3 through 6. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and for my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have stayed silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Hasuer said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. So we've reached this climactic moment in our story. Not only is Esther interceding for her people, but she's identified herself as one of them. She's bound her fate to theirs. The king is so overwhelmed by this news, he steps out into his garden for a moment uh, just to stew on, on what he's hearing. And he leaves Haman and Esther together. Uh, and that's, that's not good news for Haman because he sees this influence that Esther has and he says I'm going to beg and he begs Esther and he falls on the floor and he falls on her couch and then the king walks back in and sees Haman clawing after Esther on the couch and he's, he doesn't have the best of feelings toward Haman at this point anymore the tables have completely turned no one but the king was supposed to be within seven steps of his queen or any of his concubines. But here's Haman practically touching her. So naturally he assumes she's being assaulted. And like that, Haman has his head covered, he's dragged away, and he's impaled on the very stake that was meant for his enemy, Mordecai. In a matter of one day, we see a complete reversal of Haman and Mordecai's fortunes in a way that can only be described as divine intervention. But there was still one matter that needed to be resolved. The edict calling for the annihilation of the Jews across the reaches of the Persian Empire. Though Haman experienced his justice, the edict still remained. But a Persian king's edict can't just be overturned. So Esther and Mordecai are in a bit of a legal bind. Nevertheless, the king grants them the opportunity to craft a counter-edict. 
which he agrees to approve so long as it doesn't change his previous edict. David Klein paraphrases uh, what the king is saying here pretty well. He says, write what you like, says the king, as long as it doesn't overturn, revoke, or contradict anything previously written. Write what you like to Jewish advantage, says the king, as long as you realize that Haman's decree still stands. Write what you like, says the king, it will bear my seal. But remember that so does every other official document uh, that's out there, including Haman's letter. Esther and Mordecai wasted no time in attempting to revoke the irrevocable. Their new edict gave the Jews the right to defend themselves to the death against anyone who would attack them, who would try to make Haman's uh, genocidal plan happen. But essentially, they had leveled the playing field by allowing Jews to legally fight back. They couldn't attack just anyone, but they could attack back if attacked by someone. So the new edict is sent to the far reaches of the empire. And when the 13th day of the 12 months arises, some people do rise up and try uh, to wipe out the Jewish population there. But because the Jews are allowed to fight back, they defend themselves and they emerge victorious. Some people even help the Jews after hearing about Haman and Mordecai's changes in fate. And so the reversal happened on a truly enormous scale, not just between Mordecai and Haman, but, but between the Jews and the people who would try to destroy them. In response to this, uh, in response to this glorious change in fate, uh, a new holiday was instituted, which we read about in chapter 9. Uh, you might have heard of it, especially if you um, have uh, any kind of Jewish background or maybe have some Jewish friends. It's called Purim. And uh, believe it or not, it's actually in this chapter. Um, and even though we don't seem to have an analog to it in, uh, in our Christian tradition, it still is there. It's a biblical holiday. Again, it's called Purim, which is actually the Hebrew word for lots. So it's, 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 it's almost a little strange to name a holiday after the thing that almost wiped you out. Um, but that's what they've done. And then this book prescribes how to celebrate, and it becomes this annual feast. Um, and after Mordecai and Esther had sent instructions on this celebration of Purim throughout Persia, uh, the story ends in chapter 10, uh, where Mordecai is honored, and the full reversal is set in place. And that, that, my friends, is the story of Esther, through and through. There's a lot of more details in between. And again, we might read this story and think, uh, where's God? You know, I, I, I hear you, Wes. I hear the coincidences and this reversal, and that makes for a really nice story. It's good literature. Uh, but does that really mean that God is there making it all happen? And if that's you, uh, I understand your skepticism. I really get it. Uh, do me a favor, though. Let's do a quick thought experiment. I want you to imagine that you're visiting the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, France. Uh, it's one of the most premier art museums in the world. Uh, and while you're inside, you find one of Vincent van Gogh's most famous paintings. It's called Starry Night Over the Rhone. Um, if you're not familiar with it, uh, uh, it's, it's part of a series. Uh, van Gogh didn't, write, didn't just create one Starry Night painting. He created many. This is one. It's called Starry Night on the Rhone. Part of what makes it special is if you notice, there are some people in the painting, whereas in his other Starry Night paintings, no other people. But, uh, but yeah, if you look at the screen, you can see a photograph of it right now. And uh, I just want you to think, okay, you're standing before this, 
You're looking at it. You're admiring it. You're next to perhaps a pair of art lovers. One of them is a student. And one of them is a much older teacher. And after spending some time looking at this painting, soaking it all in, the teacher asks the student to find Van Gogh in the painting. And the student looks at the corners, see if he can find a signature, doesn't find anything. He thinks, okay, maybe, maybe it's somewhere else in the painting, and he's scouring, he's looking, admiring still, perhaps. He thinks for a moment, and he says, okay, I see there's some faces here. He looks, he says, ah, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure one of these is Van Gogh. It doesn't seem likely that one of these is him. He keeps scouring and scouring. He looks closer at the details of the painting. He's examining it carefully for some clue, some way that Van Gogh has put himself into the painting. And after some time, the student finally gives up. And he turns to his teacher and he says, look, I've looked everywhere in this painting. I don't see Van Gogh anywhere. I don't think he's there. Maybe he didn't even paint this. Continuing to admire the painting, the teacher strokes his chin. He says, you look for a signature, but you miss Van Gogh's artistic style. You look at the faces, but you overlook the grace of his brush strokes. And while you're looking at this painting, you conclude that Van Gogh is nowhere. But when I look at it, I see him everywhere. Oftentimes, we only see the common or the ordinary things in our lives, and we conclude that in the, ob- in the absence of any real work by God, anything that's a clear miracle, that he's just nowhere. Maybe he didn't even create this. Maybe you're struggling with that right now. Maybe you don't know what to make of God's seeming absence in your own life. If so, I hope the book of Esther shows you that he is there, not only in the brushstrokes of your life, but as the painter actively brushing you into this grand story. Maybe you have deeper issues with the story, though. Perhaps you see the poetic justice of Haman getting what he deserves, and you celebrate at the redemption of God's people in Persia against all odds, but you also remember that justice is not always served in this life. Evil people get away with their wicked plans, and many of us have experienced the pain of debilitating or fatal illness. We've lost loved ones in accidents, been the victims of racism or sexism, witnessed senseless violence or experienced unspeakable traumas. Our world is ravaged by sin and doesn't seem to get much better. When is God going to turn our tables? Where is the hope of the book of Esther in these dark times and places? These are sobering questions. I can't dismiss them. But I also know that, that Jesus is going to bring all of these things to justice in his time even though things don't always receive justice in our time. Our wait may feel long and exhausting, but Jesus is on the throne, and he is in control. In this time between Jesus' two advents, it's possible to celebrate and express joy while still grieving. Just as Mordecai mourned in anticipation of looming disaster, we can celebrate in anticipation of the return of Jesus and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And Esther should give us comfort. Because when we read between the lines, we see God's providence. And the conclusion of Esther points us to this ultimate justice that Jesus has promised to us.
As we wait for that day, we continue to live as exiles like Esther and as sojourners in this world. But we can be confident knowing that our longing is for something that Jesus has already bought and paid for. In Revelation, we get a little taste of that day. After all evil has been conquered once and for all, and after all the oppressors and the persecutors have been punished, and after the final justice has truly been served, the people of God will sit down for a banquet. But this will be an unequaled banquet, of which all other banquets are but a shadow. We will feast in ways that eclipse even the most excessive Persian table. And the joy we experience there will be impossible to extinguish. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning, to uh, explore this this wonderful story of Esther. Lord, I just pray that everyone here today would, would be able to see, to be able to read between these lines and know that you are truly present there. In this story, in all the stories of the Bible, and especially in the story that we find our part, ourselves part of, that we would really see that we are, we are part of your creation, we are part of your plan, and that one day we too will feast in the house of Zion. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.